It was a time when pro wrestling was a pop culture phenomenon. Talk about your songs, talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Pay-per-view quality matches live on free TV every Monday night. Monday, July 6, 1998. Goldberg captured the gold. We look back at the battle between WCW Monday Nitro and WWF Monday Night Raw. It's me, Austin! Oh, son of a bitch! It's me, Austin! It was me all along, Austin! This is Reliving the War with Simon Tackler and Nims Azul. You can call this the new... World Order of Wrestling, brother! Greetings one and all and welcome to another edition of Reliving the War. My name is Nims Azor, joined as always by Simon Tackler as well. And Simon, we've been getting quite a bit of traction as we delve into the Monday Night Wars, at least from the pay-per-view perspective, and so far it's been pretty neck and neck, hasn't it? Yep, and we're really ramping it up because I feel like this was a turning point. This might have been the real kick in the teeth that WCW delivered the WWF in the war because we finally get the seeds planted for Sting. Because so far from what we've seen, we're just getting old school surface Sting. But here is where that changes. And I think that was the final piece for WCW. This is definitely where the moment, where the pendulum swings towards the uh, WCW's favour. And if you haven't heard our previous episodes, make sure you jump on board the Grey Wolf Entertainment Network, Grey Wolf ENT on all the socials. You can catch up there. But we thought, you know, if we're going to talk WCW, we need to get the authority on WCW, at least locally here. And you might recognise the old WCW gold because on Twitter, I know Lance Storm, former Saskatchewan Hardcore International champion. Uh, the acronym doesn't really work when you call him <laughs> a foot champion at the end of it. The former WCW Canadian champion and the former WCW 100 kilos and under champion went and retweeted one of uh, WCW Gold's fantastic tweets. It's a segment on the Wrestling Source Bottle. Welcome to Reliving the War, the one and only Joel. Joel, thanks for joining us, man, and thanks for being a part of Fall Brawl. Thank you very much, gents. Uh, I have to uh, stop you right there when you say WCW authority. Absolutely not. Um, but I appreciate that title for sure. But um, I think I'm the third man. So uh, I can kind of mark out here and uh, I guess do I pretend to be Hulk Hogan being the third man? You know, which side is he on or uh, how do I go about that? Yeah, I feel no like one that's gets becoming more mileage a... out of that joke. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a running theme here. On a WCW episode, we might as well always have a third man so we can just yeah. run this joke into the ground. You did mention there a retweet from um, Lance Storm. Also, some retweets from Lodi, uh, Scotty Riggs, uh, most of the flock, really. I think that the flock <laughs> tend to flock to that uh, Twitter page. <laughs> I love a great pun there, uh, which is, which I will fit straight into. But get a bit of background for those that might not uh, listen to the Wrestling Source Bottle. Joel, what got you into WCW? Because I love the just the nostalgia that flows into my Twitter feed every time I see a WCW gold post. What is it about that era of WCW that really, I don't know, captivates you? Well, it's funny that we're covering uh, Fall Brawl 96, which is basically, basically the I guess, the start of the Sting turn into what would eventually be the Crow Sting. Um, I'm a big Sting fan, and basically as a kid, just saw the face paint. I only really knew Sting as the black and white Crow Sting. I never really knew Surfer Sting until I went into the archives. So I'd have to say being a Sting fan and the face paint, that's kind of what really got me into it. Um, I think... 
Chris Jericho as well, which who's who's on this show as well. I was a big fan of Chris Jericho through that 90s. I mean, I'm probably one of the few people that say Chris Jericho in 98, uh, even 97, that's probably when he was almost at his peak in some uh, capacities. Um, yeah, so just been a Sting fan. And um, I don't know, there was something about the product, I think, in the mid-90s and the late 90s. I mean, I had an NWO T-shirt. I had the NWO um Wolfpack uh, hat, um, yeah, it's, it's almost hard to describe. And it's sort of, I, you look back at it in rose-tinted glasses, uh, uh, figuratively and uh, metaphorically. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I can't put, quite put the finger on it, but I'm, I have to put it to Steve. Were you a WWF fan over WCW or you were one of those kids who was a WCW person? I would have to say I was a WCW fan over WWF at the time, but I want to say that the where it kind of all turned around was I think it would have been No Mercy '99 with WWF and the first ladder tag team match scene, a very the very young Hardy Boys and Edge and Christian. I was like, oh, that's something I could identify with, sort of being young and you know following through their careers. And I think you could sort of tell from '99 to 2000. The product, they were uncomparable. Uh, and this sort of coming from a slightly uh, Vince Russo fan here, it's, it definitely did. The uh, As they say, I think, in Carpentry, the ass kind of fell out of WCW a bit in 99 and 2000. And then I was kind of pretty much just a WWF guy. But still very much allegiance with Sting and was always hoping for a uh, crossover that we eventually got at <laughs> WrestleMania 31 or Survivor Series. Yeah, and it was everything that we kind of wanted. <laughs> but no, we are. Look, we do thank you for joining us here, Joel. But uh, let's get straight into Fall Brawl 1996 because, as Simon mentioned, this is. It does seem like this was where it all sort of kicked in favour for WCW. You had an absolute killer main event in War Games. It will start from the very start here. First off, Simon, we've been lambasting WCW uh, their past couple of pay-per-views for the for the subpar video packages saying that, you know, comparing it to like a year 10 media project, but uh, I'll tell you what, they really improved uh, to kick off this pay-per-view. Yeah, I feel like they got a time machine, went to the future, heard our criticism, went back and fixed this (laughs) video package because it was good. It was a black and white recap of the whole NWO story to this point. I would give it five stars, but I'm going to knock off a point for reusing the theme song from a few pay-per-views ago. They used the crazy knockoff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They used the Seal knockoff twice in the span of like three months. It's a good song. I love Seal, but no, can't go to the well too many times. But uh, what did you think of of, uh, the opening of uh, Fall Brawl 96, Joel? I mean, from the get-go, it's high stakes. I, I loved it. I mean, and the as much as many people knock WCW for always, I guess, putting the the top guys in the in sight, you know, talking through cruiserweight matches or whatever matches, there was always stakes with WCW, at least at this period of time. And you sort of that's furthered when you have your commentators, uh, Dusty, Bobby, and Tony, basically again reiterating the stakes. You know, who is Sting? Is it what's has Sting turned on WCW? Um, I guess in regards to quality of the, the package, I thought it was pretty great. I think it was one thing that uh, WCW didn't incorporate moving forward, like into the likes of 97, 98, sort of using these type of packages for four matches that eventually the WWF would become the best at doing and could basically tell you wouldn't even have to watch Raw or Nitro. If you watch the package at the beginning of the pay-per-view or the ones they showed before the match, you got it and they had your hook, line and sinker. Yeah, well, we were watching SummerSlam for our last episode and the video package at the top of that show, 
it's night and day. It's not even yep. close compared to this. And the voiceover guy they had, Jim Fagan at the time, just added so much drama. And yeah, I think WCW just gave up at a certain point by 97 or 98. They were like, no, we can't even, can't even touch it. You would just have Mean Gene drinking some martinis being like, you want me to say what? Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Super Brawl or whatever. <laughs> well, we kick off Fall Brawl 96 with that, with that pretty good video package. And then we've got, as Joel mentioned, you've got the commentary team, Tony Schiavone in a suit and a red bow tie for some reason. But he's and, in a, full and a cummerbund around yeah. his waist like he's yeah, uh, he- going to a formal. So he's he's in full on dev mode here, <laughs> and and it's hard to and as you mentioned, Joel, like the stakes are set. They always mention that this is life or death for WCW, which is very very interesting because that is a constant throughout the entire pay per view. And just a quick question: uh, Obviously, they sort of have the fireworks, you know, they show the crowd, and then they go to the uh, commentators. Uh, do you do you like that as a as a fan watching from home, having the commentators sort of be on screen and then to the match? Because I guess we're really conditioned now, fireworks or whatever, and like theme music match. It was Simon. You've been watching a lot of um, WCW Nitros, uh, like just you've been binge watching it, like someone would watch Desperate Housewives. But um, <laughs> but, uh, but that was a very WCW trope, wasn't it? To sort of welcome you to the broadcast, mm. and then here's what we got, guys. I I really like it, but it's funny that they yeah. actually don't do that as a thing. WWF did do it for a while too. Like you know, you'd get the pyro and ballyhoo, as they say, and then it would cut. Even though it wasn't long, you'd get JR and King at least telling you a couple of highlights, like Stone Cold is in the building, ah, oh, The Undertaker yeah. in the main event. We don't, yeah, we don't really get that anymore. Do you think that's a, I mean, don't want to get off too off track here, but is that a confidence thing that Vince doesn't have any new commentators or just? I, th- I think it's, it's, it could also probably be like, you know, there's a bit of gravitas with Vince McMahon and, um, and the Macho Man welcoming you to Raw, whereas Michael Cole and, T- and yeah. Todd Phillips don't really sort of have that, like, don't get me wrong, they do some fantastic work, but they don't quite have that sort of um, that, that X factor and the presence, yeah. But uh, look, it was, it's, it's one of those things too, especially considering the fact that the last time we saw Dusty Rhodes, he was wearing an incredible <laughs> denim ensemble that, that, you, that, Describing it would not do it justice, we'll put it that way. But we start off with the DDP in a grudge match against Chavo Guerrero Jr. Now, this is before Pepe. This is a very, very young Chavo Guerrero Jr. too. And DDP enters the ring with a cigar and he's actually smoking on live pay-per-view as well. One of his many gimmicks, DDP, uh, I think he had a toothpick, a cigar, the glasses, um, almost too many gimmicks here. But straight out of the shoot, seeing a Chavo Guerrero DDP match, I'm like, what the hell, where the hell has this come from? But obviously the backstory being that DDP has been, you know, knocking off the Guerreros. He uh, had a match with Eddie at Clash of Champions leading to this. So that all makes sense. But out of the shoot, I was like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, I, I thought it was a good match, though. It's kind of weird. You, w- you would almost think these two characters, even though they were both in WCW for so long, you would think they never interacted. You know, mm. they just feel like they were from two different eras and sort of two different levels of WCW because WCW was very segmented. You know, certain guys would never move up to a certain point. So to see DDP and Chavo back here when they both had something to prove, um, I thought they put on a really good match. An interesting thing, though, is that DDP was the heel. He wasn't a face yet, but the crowd is starting to cheer him. 
He almost has it together. He's got too many gimmicks. He needs to tone down the good God and all of that rubbish. (laughs) And he needs to join his hands because at this point, he was putting up both hands for the diamond symbol and only Mm. connecting them at the end when he was going for the finisher. I think once he figured out, what if I put my hands together and make it look like a diamond, then the whole crowd was on board. That was the missing piece. Nail on the head there, Simon. Uh, I mean, I made in my notes here, I think it was when he did a turnbuckle move. And I mean, most crowds like high-risk moves, but the crowd really uh, reacted. And then I think he even stood up and did the almost diamond cutter signal and the crowd were uh, reacting. And we talk about Fall Brawl 96 kind of being the genesis of Sting, but it's almost, you could say, the beginning of the genesis or the change of DDP. Mm. Yeah, you're right. He he almost sort of um, like every time we see him, he sort of trims just an extra layer of fat. Like he's still got a bit of excess here in terms of carry on, but he does know like, hang on, I'm slowly working out where I am and we will see peak DDP as we go along there. But um, I did enjoy the match. I thought it was a, a great bounce from the kickoff. Like you sort of said, Simon, it's one of those things where WCW had that much talent, yet for some reason they never sort of crossed streams. Like it's insane to think that Bret Hart and Hulk Hogan never really did much together uh, when they were both in the same locker room. But we'll get to that very later on in this <laughs> series, obviously. But a little side note, me, brother. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, a little thing that I really enjoyed was with the little nameplate that pops up uh, before the match with like you know like who's coming to the ring. The tank, the War Games tank, actually shoots the name uh, like DDP Chavo. Oh, uh, I it didn't actually shoots that. It's really cool. And it's those little touches that WCW did, I think, bit a lot better than WWF did back in the time. But uh, talking of recaps, we get straight into the next recap, which is The Attack. Mm. And you could, for me at least, this sort of really seemed like they knew that they were onto something. Just like, okay, we got a lot of new eyeballs here to check out. Uh, maybe it was the appeal of war games, because traditionally, four brawls where they had war games. But um, what do you think of the uh, the recap? To, the, to really sort of put the um, that exclamation point that, like, this is a really big deal, this main event. I think with this video package, it just hammers home the point that we've made before. Mean Gene is one of WCW's pay-per-view MVPs. Like, he adds so much to the show. Like you said, maybe the announcers this day can't add that gravitas. I think Mean Gene is the bis- biggest example of that. He brings so much credibility and they allow him to be credible. That's something we don't really see in the modern era. He was treated like a real journalist and this was like a 60 minutes report in the middle of a wrestling show. He recapped it perfectly. The video packages were great and he takes it seriously and I think that's what does it. This was really good. Yeah, I mean, as a package, it was great. But, I mean, maybe personally, maybe a little bit too early on in the show. Maybe they could have had it in the middle of the show or even just before the actual um, uh, War Games itself. But, may, I mean, you know, running a show, there could have been millions of things happening behind the scenes and that was their go-to if they needed to kill some time or need to sort stuff out. But, I mean, it's hard to fold it. Again, stakes, you know, really, again, WCW was all about the stakes. Sometimes... It was more about the stakes than the actual sizzle at times, but um, Mm. yeah, it was great. (laughs) Another thing that I did notice in this package is they actually cut out Kevin Nash's look at the adjective (laughs) line. (laughs) So so even then, they're just like, hang on, whoa, 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 let's, because that's that's done its best to be in every single recap and, and, and documentary that's being done about the NWO. That line is always like, 
well, no, that was never said. I know what you're talking about, guys. So oh. it's good to see that even in 1996, someone in WCW just went, look, we've got, we've really got to get rid of that line. Because <laughs> uh, the intent behind it is so good, though, because he was trying to show that they're smart. They're not these, like, dumb wrestlers who yell. It was such a good line, but, but he just stuffed it up and <laughs> forgot his grammar, you know, primary school lessons. The other line they kept in, one that I had never seen highlights of, was Sting confronting Scott Hall and he quotes Guns N' Roses. I, I always love it when wrestlers take um, like famous <laughs> lines and just steal them as catchphrases. He said, do you know where you are? You're in the jungle. Like, yeah, from Robinson's <laughs> yeah, Jungle. Right. Well, that was good. But to do it in um, actual Rose style, he should have gone, yay, yay. <laughs> <That was laughs> <good. laughs> but yeah, it was it was a phenomenal package too. But considering the fact we've just literally seen the opening video package followed by a grudge match and then like, hey, oh, did you miss yeah. the package that we just showed you 15 minutes ago? <laughs> Look, but, but, but there it is. Like It just goes to show that they are trying to make it a very, very big deal. And as we move on to the next match, uh, when you think of WCW and the immense roster that they have, Scott Norton and Ice Train are not two people that I would put in a submission match. Uh, we'll start off with you, Joel. What did you think of this one? Look, Road Wild 90, uh, 1996, that match between them was so hot that we we had to back up another pay-per-view match with Ice, uh, <laughs> Ice Train, yeah, Ice Train and um, <laughs> Scott Norton. Um, I mean, two great talents in their own right. Probably Scott Norton also obviously had a big career over in Japan. But a submission match, I think when you've got two big guys like that, keep it short and sweet. They just beat the hell out of each other. Keep it under uh, five minutes. I think this match went for about seven minutes. It's about five minutes too long. Teddy Long, Ice Train's manager, had the white towel. I was hoping for him to throw it in uh, five minutes in, but uh, obviously not the case. Yeah, fire and ice exploding again. Um, I didn't need to see this twice. Nims, you said you didn't even know they were ever a team. You didn't even know who Ice Train was. I'm guessing we never see him on a pay-per-view again. From what I can remember, this is pretty much it for him. A couple of great quotes from the commentary team here, though. Dusty Rhodes said, uh, he's got arms like tree trunks and a chest like the Grand Canyon. That was great. (laughs) And then Bobby Heenan on Teddy Long holding the towel, as you said, Joel. He said he's not going to throw that towel in. He's holding it so he can shine his head with it. Classic Bobby (laughs) Heenan. And also, Scott Norton's haircut is different from the last pay-per-view. He's got the spikes on top with a short mullet. And this just took me back. In 1996, this was like the hottest haircut in my primary school. (laughs) You were the cool kid who played footy. You had spiky hair and a mini mullet. Like, Scott Norton would have been cool. Oh, man, that, that's, that's insane. Uh, one other thing I do have to bring up, though, Teddy Long, when he first came out, now, I'm used to the Teddy Long of the 2000s, uh, you know, tag team match player, one-on-one with The Undertaker. So when referee. he comes out, yeah, yeah, referee in, in the um, early days of the Attitude Era. So when I see him come out looking like the dad from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, <laughs> it's, it's a real, like, whoa, Teddy... <laughs> What what happened to you at WCW? It was crazy. Well, wow, I and wish it, that was the gimmick. I wish he was Uncle Phil and Ice Train was the Fresh <laughs> Prince. That would have been money in 96. But, yeah, so Teddy Long just looked a lot different to what we see now. I'm glad to see that he's obviously taken a, a turn for a much healthier lifestyle. But, yeah, this was a very forgettable match. Maybe that's why they put that video package beforehand, to make you talk about, hey, <laughs> dude, we've got a great main event coming up. What the – is that – 
Fire and Ice again? <laughs> but just to go back to Road Wild 96, Ice Train was injured. It kind of, it, it might not have been a great match, but it told a basic story. Scott Norton is working on the arm. He's injured. And I can be like, yeah, I can, I can pass that. But then to put him in a submission match a month after that, it's like, nah. Nah. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a very big question mark there. And I think he, he finishes, it's finished off with a full Nelson as well. So hmm. it's not exactly, you know, that devastating, oh, no, he's going to lock in the full Nelson. Is he? Okay, great. Every decade, the full Nelson comes back in style. We had Ice Train here. We had the masterpiece, Chris Masters, Mm. in the 2000s. Now we've got Bobby Lashley doing the full Lashley. That move just just won't go away. Yeah, someone is doing their absolute best to try and make it a thing. But uh, look, (laughs) we'll get on on to the next match. This one is Huvitu Guerrero versus Conan. Conan with one N in his uh, name. And for Keen avid um, followers of the WCW Gold Facebook page, you might notice that, uh, and this is something you pointed out to me too, Simon, keep your eyes out on Hoobie's entrance because uh, if that's... <laughs> Simon, do you want to let us know what happens? Yeah, so Hoobie is coming to the ring. He's fired up. He's so excited. His first pay-per-view. When he gets to the ring steps, he turns around and thinks he can walk backwards and like, rah, rah, hype up the crowd. He doesn't realize the steps are behind him and he just trips over them. It's great. It's so good. I rewound it, if that's a word, rewound it like three times. It's so good. Yeah. Poor Hoovy. Oh, man. Uh, but yeah, and he's obviously pretty young here, Hoovy. I think it possibly one of his first pay per view matches. Excited and trips over. And, and if that. It, he came back from it in a pretty good match here with Conan, but it could have just gone all downhill from there. I do have to say, though, this was for the Mexican heavyweight title of AAA, I'm pretty sure, but Conan didn't bring the title out and... Yeah, even Hoobie's not a heavyweight. heavyweight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> none of it made sense. And it was so strange, too, because I remember, cause I remember watching it and they're, they're all of a sudden they're going, we could have a new champ. I'm like, oh, that's right. Yeah, it's for a belt. <laughs> but, uh, and, and this is the other weird thing, too. So Conan is part of the Dungeon of Doom here as well. And Jimmy Hart is with him. Yeah, Jimmy Hart is with him. But this is the thing. He's in his full, um, you know, the, the sort of gangster, gangster clothes, Conan, that has served him so well, even up till today. And Jimmy Hart is just so out of place. None of it makes sense. We, no- we noticed no. this last time. Seeing pre-gangster Conan is weird. This might be weirder because it's gangster Conan in the Dungeon of Doom with <laughs> Jimmy Hart. Like, none of this fits. And I'm glad he eventually broke away. It's a mess. Obviously, Conan doesn't need a mouthpiece because he's like, you know, great on the mic. Um, but it, it sort of goes, uh, what are we here, 96, that mid-90s, the Dungeon of Doom had pretty much had their time. It was very much on the tail end of it. And, yeah, bad casting having Conan, like a Hispanic, you know, gangster guy in the Dungeon of Doom. It just made no sense, did it? And I didn't even realise Conan was in the Dungeon of Doom until watching Ball Ball 96 the other day. And, yeah, Jimmy Hart, I think Eric Bischoff used to like to make the joke on 83 Weeks. Uh, he never met a red light that he didn't love. So anytime he had a chance to get out there on camera, he was there. Makes perfect sense when you put it that way. Simon, you've been, uh, as I said, you've been binging WCW Nitros. Did, did they ever explain why Conan is in the Dungeon of Doom? Just because he's a bad guy. I think he turned <laughs> and just joined them. But it didn't make sense because you'd see Kevin Sullivan, this like cult satanic guy. You'd see Meng and the Barbarian. They were like monstrous guys. And then it was, and a Mexican guy. It felt a bit on the nose from WCW to sort of assert that what makes him a monster 
is that he's Mexican and dressed <laughs> like a cholo. It's like, what? That's, that's kind of weird. Anyway, but that's wrestling in the 90s, so. He's a Mexican uh, monster. Come yeah. in. I'm trying to do the uh, best Kevin Sullivan there. <laughs> but, uh, but it's a weird thing. It's it's a weird visual. It's a weird yeah. everything. It just does not fit. He sticks out like a sore thumb. What but about Jimmy is- Hart saying "Arriba la raza" like three times? <laughs> that was even that. That's the weirdest that's- part of it. That was a oh. highlight, actually. Yeah, yeah. It, it is one of the strangest matches you will ever see. All in all, though, um, you could tell that this is one of Hoovy's first pay per view matches, but. Because uh, it's a little bit sloppy. There's a couple of uh, mm. it, it really, it really. And when I say sloppy, I don't mean to sound all smarkish, but there are some times where mm. you're like, "Hoover, you could have killed yourself yeah. there, bro." Absolutely. <laughs> he was only 20, so we'll cut him some slack. That's amazing. Yeah. Remember yeah. the time in wrestling where they could just take a 20 year old guy and be like, "Yeah, you're just on a pay per view now. Like, w- why not? There's no <laughs> developmental. Yeah, we heard you can do some cool flips. Here you are. You're on pay per view for the Mexican World Title." And I don't know yeah. about you guys, but the Juice, he was definitely one of my favourite cruiserweights uh, from WCW. Um, I only knew him without his mask. Um, I obviously, going back in the archives, knowing that Chris Jericho, you know, beat him for the, um, the mask and the title. But he was uh, up there. I think him and Billy Kidman were, like, my top two cruiserweights. Yeah, Hoovy, Kidman, Psychosis, um, Silver King, for some <laughs> reason, always. And was Ray, just, of course. And Ray, course, yeah. Ray. But but yeah, it's it's funny that you know, unfortunately for Hoovy, um, personal demons as we, as it's often uh, described as, because there was even that story of uh, Simon. You'd remember this one in in two thousand during the the infamous Nitro trip where he got a little bit too party hardy in Brisbane and had to be sent home. The, I think it was at the Versace Hotel or something, as legend goes, <laughs> or something like that. But yeah, he was. The juice was on the Come juice on now. and it wasn't good. Yeah. We've, we've, we've all had a bit of a time at the at that uh, establishment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who hasn't been a, a, an early two th- early 90s, w, late 90s, early 2000s WCW cruiserweight and hasn't had a little bit too much on the source? But anyway. Look, but just to quickly uh, say, I mean, the three matches in, I would have, uh, this was my favourite match thus far in the pay-per-view. Um, how would you guys rate, I mean, the match quality coming up to this point? I, l- I really like Chavo and DDP. I thought that was the best so far because for me, this match, what took me out of it, the suspension of disbelief, as great as Hoovy was, there was a lot of Conan standing around with no expression, just waiting for Hoovy to fall on him. Yeah. <laughs> just him random- randomly standing there. Although when Conan would hit a powerbomb, the crowd would explode. 1996 crowds loved powerbombs. So it was still exciting, just a bit weird. And the, the quote-unquote sloppiness of um, Hoovy is sort of accentuated by those power moves in the sense mm. that Conan is literally ragdolling him sometimes, just tossing him around like he's just absolutely nothing. But it's the Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart just had no business being there. And I don't know why he was there, but there you go. The Dungeon of Red Doom. Red light, baby. Red light. Red light, <laughs> red light baby. But uh, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, Simon, just throwing 20-year-olds on pay-per-view for the first time ever in front of a global audience. How's this one? And it sounds so weird to say this. This is Chris Jericho's first pay-per-view appearance. Jericho versus Chris Benoit. And Jericho just... It, it's funny too because like having watching... It's sort of like... You know when a friend has a baby and you've seen that baby on a fairly regular basis, how you can sort of see it growing up, whereas maybe another friend also has a child and you don't see it often. It's like, whoa, when did he get so big? Um, (laughs) This is one of those cases where Jericho 
doesn't look too different, but I think it's because we've grown up with his career so much. But all I can say is Benoit is stiff in this one. Joel, what did you think? You're a diehard Jericho-holic. So when you see Jericho in his debut pay-per-view being taken to the woodshed by Chris Benoit, what do you think? Well, what Chris Benoit match is not physical. You're guaranteed if Chris Benoit is on the card, he is going to be slapping the crap out of uh, his opponent. Um, but, I mean, you nail on the head there when you talk about, uh, you know, seeing someone grow up uh, in front of you, and, you know, to, I guess to mark out, you know, so you can say, oh, that's my guy. I'd have to say, well, Chris Jericho's kind of that guy. He fits that profile. Watched him from WCW to WWE to now AEW. But, oh, this was – I thought this was great debut um he was basically just a clean meat baby face blonde hair and i think if i've done my research correctly i think he was basically hired from eric bischoff on the proviso of chris benoit basically like yeah hire this guy he'll he'll be good and i think his first few house matches or maybe even a couple tvs left a little bit to be desired and i don't know if it was eric bischoff or even chris benoit said i will get me in the ring with him and you know I'll show you what he can do and get a good match out of him. So maybe the being stiff was like telling him to lift his game perhaps. But, I mean, I know I just said the last match was my favourite up until that point. I mean, this took over, obviously, being a uh, diehard Chris Jericho fan. Um, yeah, I mean, I I actually like uh, Chris Benoit's uh, old school music. I don't know uh, where oh, you guys yeah. get the like, theme music. Obviously, Chris Jericho is covered um, with the Walls of Jericho or whatever it is because of the WWE Network and um, uh, things like that. But I think this is even just his first one, which was just a generic uh, basketball replay 12 um, <laughs> that he was using at the time. But it was a match where, yes, Benoit was really physical, but he showed the crowd what Chris Jericho could do. He wasn't just this good-looking guy with long hair that, you know, girls would be attracted to. He, they showed him that he could, he could work and that he could have decent matches. And that didn't really work for Jericho here, though, being like the the white meat babyface, though, trying to hype up the crowd. They really didn't like him. They were all for Benoit in this match because, you know, they were in Winston-Salem, Horseman country. I thought it was interesting, though. In um, Jericho's uh, entrance, I had to rewind it. I thought, did I mishear that? But they said Chris Jericho from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He's from Winnipeg, you idiot. Yeah. Like, you know, that's all <laughs> they made me think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is true. But, but like at the at the same time, like I forget too that Chris Jericho originally debuted. Like when you see everything he's accomplished in his career, and it is an absolute stellar resume. You forget that he debuted in WCW as a cruiserweight, and mm. when you see him outside the ring doing those death-defying aerial moves and things like that, he's flying around like a luchador, which is generally what he's done with all of his experience. Like he's trying to stand out and do something there. And you're right, Joel. I think this is his, his. This was his dance partner. Later on, obviously, we we'd see him do some great stuff with Dean Malenko. But I think you're right. Benoit is sort of like the catalyst of, and we know the high standard that Benoit had um, for his matches. So it, it, there was even a part a part there too where Chris Jericho does a tombstone pile driver mm. and then follows it up with a lion salt. Like it is crazy. It's it's sort of like. He's thrown everything in his in his arsenal in this match, and it's interesting, isn't it? He goes to WWF in '99, same sort of deal. Um, comes starts with a big bang, kind of teeters off a little bit, but then gets gets his way back into the fold. 
I'm a big fan of the Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho 2000 feud. I mean, there was, again, sort of, I feel like Chris Benoit legitimized Chris Jericho. I think there was a few matches where he choked him out with the cross face or whatever. Mm-hmm. Again, he's not just this pretty guy with long hair. He, he's tough and he can fight. And it was just interesting watching, you know, 96 and then to 2000, how they've always been good dance partners. I think their matches get better. Uh, I think it's sort of an underrated one, but they had a match at SummerSlam 2000, best two out of three. Doesn't go for that long. I've heard Jericho say it wasn't his favourite, but it's very good. But then they top everything they ever did at Royal Rumble 2001 in that ladder match, which is just the best, one of the best ladder matches ever. And I think that sort of clouded my judgment of this match. I thought it was really good. But knowing what I know that they would do a few years later, it didn't live up to those expectations. Although, fun to see... Benoit doing the walls of Jericho to Chris Jericho before before it was Jericho's finisher. So he must have liked that and said, I'm going to take that, you know? Yeah, I noticed that as well. He did it like almost in the first uh, couple of minutes of the match, yeah. Yeah, it was real real early. And the full um, WCW Lion Tamer where the the knee really goes into the neck sort of thing there. But uh, look, a a great match there. Benoit was clearly the overwhelming favourite, as you mentioned, Simon, being Horseman Country. And uh, the Cruiserweight show continues with the Cruiserweight title being defended in the next match. It's Super Carlo versus Rey Mysterio Jr. And the first note that I've written down here just said, rest holds to start question mark mm. <laughs> you've got two guys and this was a weird thing that wcw used to always do like and it goes to show like you know now first off your buddy mike Tanay comes in here to uh simon to do a bit of commentary i know but uh, <laughs> yeah. but um it, it was one of the cool things that wcw did getting all these into to sort of show how everyone wants to be in wcw this bloke came from mexico he came from japan he came from such and such but um super carlo uh, yeah, it's. I don't think he did too much afterwards. Joel, you probably know a little bit more about Super Carlo and his WCW resume, but um, did he do much after this? Because it just seems like a waste on on Mysterio. Look, I have to go to Wikipedia. This is the if there's going to be a highlight reel of his WCW stuff, this is it. Um, um, I was just going to say, I feel like there should be more luchadors who need hats attached to their masks backwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're right, uh, rest holds straight away. The crowd was kind of dead after the Jericho Benoit match a little bit. Maybe that sort of took a, a bit of um, a bit of a spark out of them. I thought, oh, you know, this would be able to reamp and back up. I mean, they got there eventually. But yeah, I think, I mean, of all the cruiserweights they had, I mean, I don't know, maybe you know, short, short, hey, oh, Super Kelly, get out there. We'll put you on the <laughs> title. It's uh, a good match, though. I think it was one of those matches that, that it took them a while to win over the crowd. and. Uh, eventually um, got there. Yeah, Super Calo was like a, a cult favourite of a lot of WCW fans. I remember liking him as a kid, maybe not just for his high flying, but really it was all about the outfit with him. Again, Sonny's in a hat while wrestling. Great look. We need more of that. But anyway, as a kid, obviously we didn't have the internet to look these things up. I was looking up what Super Calo is, where he got the gimmick from, Turns out Calo was a famous Mexican rap dance group and Mm. in Mexico they um, gave him permission to use it. There was like a ceremony in the ring where they said you can have the name and the look. I'm just going (laughs) to share you guys uh, a picture of the band and you can see the guy that he took uh, the image off. So it was like a a five 
member group similar to maybe Steps or S Club 7, a few guys and a few girls. But one of the guys wore the hat and the sunnies. Similar to Steps, he says. Similar to Steps. It was the only um, comparison I could make. Yeah. Oh, my God. So that was callow and he was super callow. Like, imagine there was... Backstreet Boys, and then Super Backstreet Boy, the wrestler. I, I'm all for oh. it. We need more of that. Featuring yeah, their hit single, yeah. yeah, featuring their hit single, La Casa del Capitan. Right. So well done, Super Calo. Well Casa done. the He's Captain. A... That's you know sounds kind of cool. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Did anyone else find it weird that Tony Schiavone was focusing on the knee pads of Super Calo, <laughs> like towards the latter end of the match, son? <laughs> Okay. He was sitting next to Mike Tanay with all this knowledge. My, Tony's there going, oh, I've got to mention something here. Uh, knee pads. Yeah, they're interesting, aren't they? <laughs> to be fair, those knee pads shouldn't be legal because they were skateboarding knee pads, which mm. are very hard. And, you know, he could have done like a V-trigger, some sort of knee and knocked him out. What's funny, <laughs> my wife, Diane, walked in while I was watching that match. She s- sat down for five minutes. As Tony Schiavone said that, she goes, yeah, I noticed that too. Why is he wearing skateboard knee pads like before he finished the sentence? And I was like, damn, <laughs> she could have been a WCW commentator. Look, uh, skateboarding and Tony Hawk was about to skyrocket at about this time. <laughs> you weren't cool unless you were wearing human uh, skate shoes uh, to school. Oh, and and there you absolutely. go. Like he's 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 got the stamp of approval from uh, you know one of the biggest bands in Mexico in Calo. <laughs> he, he's trying to appeal to the to the Western audiences there. But uh, uh, moving back to the match, it, it ends well. There's also a Frankenstein into the outs outside as well. Mm. And also one of my favorite things in a war games match in a war games ring when it's not with war games, he gets into the he uses both rings, which is something that I really really enjoy. Oh, the ending of this match, even if the match, you know, had a few rest holds, the high spots were good, but this ending is one of the best endings ever. Ray starts on one side, does a backflip off the ropes to the other ring, then does a double jump Hurricane Rana. That's still one of my favourite moves ever. Ray Mysterio is the man. You've mentioned it a few times that um, sometimes Ray doesn't get the credit that he deserves. This is 96 and he's still sort of part-time, still going at it with WWE. Obviously not to that extent, but most of his WCW stuff, he was, you know, it was a car wreck. Being like, you know, a smaller type of guy who in a land of the giants type of thing was never really supposed to get over. He was just supposed to be that sort of cruiserweight, you know, high flop, whatever. But then obviously WWE, completely different story. Yeah, very much so. It's, it's crazy that, you know, we're talking about Rey Mysterio wrestling a bloke named Super Calo for a cruiserweight title for a pay-per-view <laughs> in 1996 when literally a couple of days ago he was wrestling at SummerSlam. <laughs> with his so, son. Yeah, his with his daughter. adult son. <laughs> crazy. Yes. So that is incredibly crazy there. But yeah, a stellar match, which leads us to our next one. And what I loved was Tony Schiavone starts off this tag team match between the Nasty Boys and Harlem Heat by saying, this will be nothing like the Rey Mysterio match you just saw. <laughs> He's literally going out saying, I know we've had some great matches, but this one ooh, could be a bit on the nose. Joel, what did you think of this fight? I have to tell you, I have a bit of a, it's a guilty pleasure, the Nasty Boys, I have to admit. And I think if you look at the crowd reaction, they got a reaction. And they you, again, again WCW gets, you know, oh, buying old stars, blah, blah, blah. The crowd, okay, Eric Bischoff was either a genius or he knew that, nostal- that even back in 96, people had nostalgia. Hulk Hogan, 
Randy Savage, the Nasty Boys at a lesser extent. But, I mean, they were recognisable stars and they were popular with the crowd. Uh, and, obviously, Harlem Heat, big Booker T fan. I mean, obviously, going on to be one of the best of all time. I, I do feel they could have had at least one more manager out with them. Uh, obviously, uh, <laughs> Colonel Robert Parker, I believe it is, and uh, the sensational Sherry or Sister Sherry, as she is mm-hmm. known in WCW. Um, these two teams, I think they've, like, they've faced each other a million times up until this point. Um, but, yeah, a bit of a guilty pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed it. Joel, let me blow your mind because this happened to us when we were uh, watching um, one of the other WCW pay-per-views. You said nostalgia there. The Nasty Boys couldn't be considered a nostalgia act in this day and age. They seemed old. Even as kids, Nasty Boys, Earthquake, Big Boss Man, these guys seemed old. Both Nasty Boys in 1996 were only 32. That's insane, isn't yeah, it? It's crazy. That's like it? basically my age right now. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm just... older than them right now, which is just, <laughs> they look like my, my wife dad. gives me heaps. My wife gives me heaps. She's like, Joe, you've got to do your face routine, your skin routine and all that sort of stuff. So I might have to get on that. Um, but they, yeah, they did. They just look like these old bouncers or these yeah. these old uncles at your party. It's just, yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and they and, were underrated, though. You watch these WCW matches, and then you watch some WWE ones with the Heart Foundation or the Legion of Doom. The Nasty Boys weren't that bad at all. It was just this really over-the-top gimmick, which is the only thing you remember as a kid. You put a question mark on that, Simon, how, like, you know, like, with in, in 2020, and modern wrestling fans really, really crap on the Nasty Boys, but... We looked at their match at Bash of the Beach 96. It's the one where the crowd gets into so much. Hogwild, well, the crowd's into the match for another reason. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, sorry, that's the Steiners there. But but they're all... but, um, But, like, the Nasty Boys, like it or not, were very, very over with the WCW crowd. So, and... Everyone here sort of did their role. Like you said, Joel, it's a very overbooked mess, but that's what you paid to see. Mm, absolutely. And I, I love Sherry. I mean, and obviously, because she was a performer, she she could go and, you know, obviously getting picked up and sort of being physical. Um, I think, yeah, Colonel Parker as well, he's the sort of part-time wrestler, I mean. But I think uh, good chemistry, in my opinion. And I, again, you go from a high-flying match to a, a really kind of physical type of, it's not going to be clean-cut type of, you know, uh, almost like dancing, so to speak. But, um, yeah, like I said, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, and honestly, the the variety of these WCW shows is what made them. The 96, 97, 98 era, uh, it was high risk, high reward. They would just put the most random matches after each other. There was no set WCW style, and that's what made it good. You got variety, yeah. completely different ends of the spectrum in terms of wrestling, and I think we need more of that. And I love the honesty of the commentary. Like you said, Nims, Tony Schiavone saying this is going to be very different. Like, we, we always needed these um, hidden clues from JR if he wasn't going to like a match. You know, bowling shoe ugly. Bowling shoe ugly, and yeah. phrases like that. Whereas Tony Schiavone was like, this one's going to be weird. You know, like... Just it's going it. to be a lot different, guys. Uh, one thing, another... While we're staying on commentary, I did make note of this. When Sherry gets thrown into the ring... Dusty Rhodes has one of the most weirdest sentences saying, come in, my fried pie. Yes. It's the strangest (laughs) line. Like, fried pie is not... Like it just made zero sense there from Dusty, but like I said, overbooked mess. But it's what we want. Harlem Heat are just absolute heat magnets. There, it's when you see so many Harlem Heat matches. 
no no disrespect at all to Stevie Ray, but Booker T is the clear star in Harlem Heat. Like he's doing a lot of heavy lifting there. Stevie was the the power, and uh, I guess Booker T was the finesse and the athletic stuff, wasn't he? Booker T, man, how good! Like he was good for so long. You watch yeah. this back, and you're like, damn, he was even good in '96. This is a complete random sidebar, but one thing as a kid I always noticed with Harlem Heat or Booker T or Stevie Ray, they had these big scars on their shoulders or something. I'm guessing, I don't know if it's yeah, in no. regards to um, shoulder fun. surgery or initiation, but I just for some reason would always notice that. Am I am I the only one who no, no, was in these? It did look like um, like they had like burn marks on their shoulders, yeah. but uh, it's uh, it's it's one to, uh, that I've always sort of been like, oh, that's different. But um, look... <laughs> An overbooked mess, as I said, but uh, it is what we paid to see. And next up, we went to a WCW merch ad. Now, I don't care what anyone has to say. WCW merch commercials were the best. <laughs> They're fantastic. It's the most. It's the cheapest of iron-on looking sort of logos, it's just a four brawl logo. But Ric Flair made me want that, and it. it it's just that. That's something else I'd like to see again. Rather, I know we have all the shop zone ads, but get the talent to to, mm. wit, to do the ads again. That's one of the cool things. What do yeah. you think about that one, uh, Simon? They'll get the wrestlers on Raw, you know, backstage to like hawk ha- mm. some uh, shop zone merch. We do need more of it. Every pay per view should have a wrestler yelling at the screen about some merchandise because yeah, Ric Flair just yelling about his full brawl shirt was so good. <laughs> I want that shirt too. And I think the reason why it was like cheap sort of iron-on stuff because WCW merchandise, uh, it really didn't become a thing until a few years after this, probably in like 97 or 98. And if you want to believe the rumours on the internet, most of that was going into uh, Hulk Hogan's uh, bank balance anyway. (laughs) Oh, don't worry. In a few years' time, the full marketing machine of WCW was uh, into full gear. I still, to this day, have always wanted to know what WCW Nitro for men smelt like. But uh... oh, like glory, <laughs> guys! I've, I've just done some research. I googled Booker T scar on shoulder. Don't say this is verified. I don't know if this is true, but the first answer that pops up: the reason why Booker T and Stevie Ray both had scars on their shoulders in the same place is because they were really Siamese twins separated at birth. Yep, you heard it here first, now spread the news. That's a, <laughs> a, a, some post from 2002, so who knows if it's true. I believe yeah. that. Uh, yeah, all right. We'll... It's a good backstory. <laughs> I'm going to put a question mark on that, but anyway. <laughs> surely Dusty Rhodes would have mentioned they were, they were joined at birth. That's how close these tag team partners were. They were Samid, baby. Stuck in the shoulder. <laughs> Separated. <laughs> <laughs> we could so get off such a huge tangent for that one. But uh, riding the track, putting the train back on the track. So you want to talk about wrestlers shouting at the camera. Mike Tanay is with uh, Randy Savage and he cuts a promo on the giant. And one thing I've always noticed is every ex-WWF guy always calls it the WCW. It's yes. just bizarre. <laughs> It's so it's so it's grammatically incorrect first off, but it's just so green. It's like um, like a hangover. They're so used to saying the WWF that they've just gone. Oh, that's right. Got to do this. If you sorry, if you're interested, uh, you can go back on the uh, WCW uh, Gold uh, Twitter page. I, I cut up uh, Hulk Hogan's uh, 
conference when he was uh, signing with WCW and, and the amount of times he says, the WCW brother. I think it was about <laughs> like 17 times he said, the WCW brother. Yeah, so that's a little side note. But that leads us to our next match, which is Savage versus the Giant. Now, the Giant, um, thankfully, has recovered from being knocked out with the, the WCW Championship at Hog Wild. He's now joined the NWO, uh, although I think no one in production got that memo because he comes out with the full Dungeon of Doom entrance before someone sort of goes, oh, hang on, let's just put the NWO theme here. And Simon, you've been watch- you as I said, you've been watching a lot of the Nitros. What did you think of this one? I thought it was weird that in the space of a pay-per-view cycle, the Giant went from the WCW champion who the NWO beat down to doing their dirty work and being a full-fledged member before the next pay-per-view because we saw the highlight earlier in the night of the Giant jumping on Sting's car or like beating up Randy Savage. It was just such a, a quick shift, but I'll be honest, to me, the Giant in NWO is what I first remember him as. Like mm. him in the NWO makes sense. He is an NWO member. Um, so I don't mind it. I just wish they got there in a different way looking back at it. Um, Bro, this- when he got hit with the belt, he got amnesia and didn't realise he was the champion, hence why he joined the NWO. I wish that's how they explained it. That would have been <laughs> awesome. Just him in the hospital saying everything's too sweet. Yeah, um, no, nah, that's that. That was one thing I did mention. I was like, "Dude, it's been the space of a month. He was the champion. You know, any athlete or person would be like, no, I want my belt back.' Like, it, it, and this is, I guess, you could say the start of WCW's continuity kind of lacking in certain things. Oh, it doesn't matter. He's on the NWO because he wants to be, you know, cool. I guess. But yeah, that was one thing. I was just like, made no sense to me. Look, it, it's this match was all Macho Man, but the Giant does look very impressive, like towering over. Um, Randy Savage, you can see why WCW really like strapped a rocket to him and you know made him the champion and put his first match against Hulk Hogan because Paul White as a human really does look very very intimidating. He's, he's got the, that million dollar look, and when Macho Man actually power slams him, the place just erupts as well. That was the pop of the night when yeah when Savage slammed him, they lost their minds, and it was a shift in the pay per view though. From, you know, the Nasty Boys match to Randy Savage and then the main event, this was like your old school main event style part of the pay-per-view. And again, he did a body slam and the crowd lost their minds more than they did for triple Hurricane Runners. Another one too, um, which is a very cool thing too that sort of um, showed just how dangerous, quote-unquote, the NWO was. When the giant lures... Macho Man towards the entranceway and Scott Hall, Nash and the NWO just absolutely jump him in a basic sort of ambush there. And I'll tell you, Joel, when, when you sort of watch it in 2020 and see all of those guys at their peak, essentially, it does sort of make you, this is actually really cool. <laughs> Look, I'm not, not, I don't disagree with you, but one of my pet peeves, especially with WCW in this era and to go onward, onwards, is these guys would do run-ins before their match. 
and I kind of I don't know the inner mark in me would just kind of feel like I feel like it takes away because you've seen them and then they basically do their entrance again or you know come out again. But um, that was I mean obviously it was a good way to have Randy Savage lose and still have that credibility. I think there was a lot of matches like that in WCW, so the top guys they would lose, do the do the job so to speak, but would still uh, have momentum as opposed to just doing it clean in the ring. But yeah, just wasn't a big fan of the likes of the Hogans and the Outsiders coming out before their matches. I kind of feel it took a little bit of that uh, I'm seeing you for the first time night dust off them, mm. if that makes sense. And and you're right, it, it does sort of, because the weird thing is to, it, it also, for me, um, it's like when you, anyone that's played like Revenge knows there's only like a certain amount of attires. When they're yeah. still in all their wrestling gear, it's kind of like, yeah. oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you can see them come up. But this was a pretty quick and inoffensive sort of match. Giant defeats Savage after the NWO interference. And uh, it, it really does sort of show you... Um, uh, just how dastardly that NWO was. But uh, then we see a Halloween Havoc preview after that. Um, and, man, Randy Savage is just... Uh, if there was a, uh, someone... Well, I can't remember who I was having this debate with, but one of my friends and I agreed that if Hulk Hogan didn't exist, was not a thing, it would be Randy Savage that everyone talks about as the superstar. It's just he was, unfortunately, in the glow of the Hulkster that stopped him from getting the actual kudos that he deserves. Cause he's just such a clear top talent there for Halloween havoc. But uh, any quick mentions uh, that you guys noticed about that promo for Halloween havoc? Yeah. I think Randy Savage looking back was WCW sort of, you know, almost like their hidden weapon in those early years. He was a big deal. Yeah. The slim Jim ads, these ads that would make him do, he was one of the faces of the promotion still. Well, that was one of the big deals with him coming across the WCW. He brought uh, Slim Jim uh, with him, essentially, which obviously was good for WCW and uh, making money because they never used to make money at all. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think time has been kind to Randy Savage's legacy, though. When he passed yeah. away, you saw the massive response from people you wouldn't expect, mainstream sports sites and entertainment sites. And I think with Hulk Hogan's you know, maybe stop dropping in terms of the public eye because of some of the discretions he's been through. I think Randy Savage has sort of gotten that 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 um, respect he uh, might not have gotten all the time. So yeah. yeah, yeah, because everyone loves doing a Randy Savage impersonation. It doesn't matter if you're a wrestling fan or not. People just love doing it. And one thing that I do, um, you mentioned too about his passing. One good thing was he was able to sort of come back into the WWE fold and sort of get the send-off he, he uh, deserved. But um, obviously he got inducted to the Hall of Fame. But the la one of the last things I remember him doing was that uh, preview for WWE All-Stars, the video game, which was a very strange one. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that was pretty cool to sort of see. But that leads us into... War Games. It's the final match on the card. Um, we go back into the locker rooms. We start off with the Four Horsemen, well, Team WCW, if you will. And Arn Anderson is really distracting you because he's doing a little the pec flex thing <laughs> <laughs> as Ric Flair is doing his absolutely crazy promo. But uh, talking about the WCW commentary, this is what I absolutely love about Bobby the Brain Heenan. He seems to be the only man there with a semblance of logic. Because as Lex Luger and Sting are having a bit of a power, it's like, you know, like like Sting's trying to plead his case. Like, I didn't, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And Luger's like, I know it was you. I looked you in the eye. Bloody, bloody, blah. 
Bobby the Brain's like, what's he been doing since Monday? Hasn't he picked up a phone? Because one of them says that to the other. They're they're like, I haven't heard from you since Monday. It's like, well, why not? (laughs) Make any sense. Look, technology back then, 96, they had, I mean, it's a far cry from the 80s, but uh, mobile phones definitely and uh, communication, there was no social uh, you know, media back then, guys. You had to wait to the event that you were booked on to uh, talk and converse. <laughs> Come on, we saw Paulie dangerously in WCW years before this with the big mobile. Surely he wasn't yes. the only guy with one of them. No, no, but Even that's back the thing. Then, yeah. He was the only guy with one. That's why no one was able to do it. The Dangerous Alliance, that's why they were always able to jump people. They were calling Dangerous Alliance. <laughs> well before his time back then in WCW. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it was it was very interesting. And, Joel, before we actually talk about the match, when you saw Sting, like, pleading his case and just the utter disrespect that people have for Sting, like, it's just like, all of a sudden, it's like, we've just seen how... Dastly and how low of low character the NWO is. All of a sudden, people are just so willing to throw Sting under the bus. It was it was an interesting sort of storyline. Obviously, I think it was uh, they had Jeff Farmer and he was the the fake Sting at this time. Mm-hmm. And you have to admit, in that limo, like it, it did kind of look like Sting. It was raining, it was dark, and I think they did a pretty good job at, uh, back then to kind of mask. Um, that not being the real sting, but it was pretty convincing. I was even thinking today, would have it paid dividends for him to sort of have like a match or sort of have him in the crowd or sort of, you know, just to, to continue that. But I'm thinking what they did for Fall Brawl was probably the best way to go about it. Otherwise, it would have kind of really, well, that's not sting, that's uh, someone else. But mm. I was really a big fan of how they, they, they shot this, how you had sort of, uh, it was sort of, I guess, breaking the fourth wall. You had sort of, you know, sting coming in, like, you know, you only saw the back of him. Again, it was that on purpose so you wouldn't you wouldn't just have see distinct fe- uh, features of his face for when this other sting comes out. So I think that was, it was smartly done. Yeah, it was actually quite a masterstroke by WCW because actually seeding, because uh, Sting is the franchise player, the mere fact that they were able to get Ric Flair, someone who is quite a dastardly, he's the dirtiest player in the game by his own admission, he's sort of seen as the shining light of WCW, whereas Sting, the guy that's actually the franchise, is really, there's a lot of doubt casted on him. Is very, very cool to sort of see. Uh, before we actually get to the match, I do have to mention, I cannot wait, Simon, until we get to 2000s WCW and we get to get get to recap the Sting versus Jeff Jarrett where four Stings interfere in the match. You've got Surface Sting, uh, Surface Sting with black hair, Wolfpack Sting, and then Crow Sting. I don't remember that. I'm going to be honest. I feel like I thought, wait, I thought that happened in TNA. I'm honestly so confused nah. now. Did they redo something similar in TNA? My timelines are all screwed up now. Wow. No, they very much did, but they, yeah, I can tell wait. you, that's something to look forward to. How's that for a tease? Yeah, yeah, they look around for five years. So much happened in 2000s that stuff that did happen, you don't remember happened. (laughs) All right. We've had our locker room promo. Time to actually get to the match. Arn Anderson versus Scott Hall starts us off. And it's actually a pretty cool little opener, the little five-minute battle. And like we mentioned at the start, they really sell the stakes here. War games. It's all about the fate of WCW and, and Simon... Obviously, we've been watching a fair few of these. We've seen the NWO, but you feel that this is the apex. This is where um, 
this is sort of the big blow-off in in essence to the storyline so far. Yeah, the first massive battle. I think back then people would have thought this may be the end of this story because this feels like the blow-off, but it's not. This is the start. Like the seeds are only being planted for all the main players, especially Sting. Before we get into the match, though, I have to mention Michael Buffer here, though. We've mentioned before how Michael Buffer reads the cue cards like he's never looked at them before. He rocks up on the day in his limo, he's backstage, they hand him the notes, never reads them until he's out there. This was the peak of confused Michael Buffer. He's reading the rules of war game and you can tell in his voice that he has no idea what any of this means. He's like, it will be a five-minute starting period and then intervals of two minutes. This team will toss a coin and it's just goes yeah. on forever it's like you don't know any of this do you but and then in the seventh interval they'll only be able to use their left hand you could have written anything on that and he would have just committed to it um but seeing scott hall and arn anderson kick this off was really cool i, I don't know if they ever had many like high, high profile matches obviously arn anderson retires not too long after this you know before the feud could go anywhere but yeah, great stuff from the workhorses, you know, of their respective teams. Um, Scott Hall, super underrated. And, you know, he anchors this match for a reason. Can I just say, though, the thing that I found absolutely funny throughout this whole uh, match was given they sort of started in the far the far ring, um, most of them were using the far catch door. And even yes. so, even so, when they were in the closer side, like the the ring closest to the entrance, it was only Ric Flair who who realised that there was an actual cage door on the other side, which was closest <laughs> to the closest ring. But all of them were doing the whole lap around the bloody ring. Yeah, because because then um, Kevin Nash comes in next, and as you says, he completely skips the first ring and goes in there. But you know, you could argue he's there to do an NWO two on one and help beat the hell out of Arn Anderson. And the desperation in the commentary is just next level here because they're just treating it as if Arn Anderson is being murdered inside that cage. And it's that's what's so cool about it. How about this for a retrospective, though? They said this was the first year that they had the coin toss out the back because tensions were so high between the two teams. I mean, you, you would like to, I mean, you know, it's sort of 96, but, I mean, have like a little, at least a little sort of uh, corner TV of like them flipping the coin or a little bit of commotion out the back, I guess, to heighten the uh, the tension. But uh, the commentary team were definitely doing their best at that. Yeah, and then um, I believe next for WCW, is it Lex Luger? Is this where he yep. enters? Lex yeah, Luger, Luger runs in. He runs into a massive ovation. Um, we tried explaining the appeal of Lex Luger to Digital Beard in our last WCW episode, the Hogwild episode. He didn't understand, and we said there is no explanation. Crowds just loved Lex Luger, and then it got me thinking. This period of time, seeing what we've seen in WWF and WCW, the most inexplicably overmatch of mid-96 would have been Luger and Sid. It would have torn the house down. These two guys just clotheslining each other. For whatever reason, each promotion just had a muscly guy who just did clotheslines, and we loved it. Even watching this, it was still exciting. Well, Luger comes in Clean's house. Yeah. And because he, he had that motorcycle accident, he's got that bit of metal in that forearm, right. and the they always forearm. like to mention that. I don't think they mention that here, but every other WCW match of Lex Luger's, it's always mentioned. The loaded but, um, forearm. 
the loaded, loaded forearm. forearm. <laughs> and you mentioned that I think uh, Lex Luger is generic A wrestler and Sid Vicious is generic B wrestler that you would sort of create in a game and they just mm-hmm. had that look. They had the blonde mullet and obviously great physique. But, yeah, you, yeah there was never been a reason. He was over here, over like Rover, as they like to say, but you put the guy on a bus and call it the bloody Lex Express and people <laughs> just fold their arms and tell you to say, no, this is bad. Yeah, it's like I this overthought it. That, that's one of Vince McMahon's real failures, though, because WCW, just a couple of years later, would put him in black tights, give him nothing else, and he would just go out and clothesline people and do the chicken and dance put for the, the torture track. And that's it. <laughs> that's it. Didn't need a bus. Didn't need a bus, just needed black trunks, a, a dance, and to <laughs> put people in the torture rack. Yeah, um, I have to say, I'm a fan of the Lex where uh, Liz would rip uh, parts of his clothes off and he would, he would pose. That's probably my <laughs> favourite Lex. Oh, no. What was his name? The, he was the total package, but there was the more to the package. gimmick, wasn't there? Like, he yeah. would have the, the flex, Lex Flexer or whatever. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't wait till we get to the part where he teams <laughs> up with Buff Bagwell and becomes totally buff. But... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But uh, look, then uh, the other thing that we've, that's, I've mentioned throughout this match, but Dusty Rhodes is absolutely fantastic on country. The way that he is just so biased towards WCW, he treats it like it's real and it's so good. And then when Flair comes in, it is the biggest pop of the night. And he does, he takes advantage, Joel, of the closer entrance and stands in the cage and makes them come to him. Yes, uh, very smartly. I think, yeah, I think like yeah, the classic Ric Flair holding the fists up saying, yeah, come at me, come at me, guys. Um, I mean, and I think yeah, I just mentioned before that he used the closed door. That, that was the first thing I noticed, that he used the closed door. So not only is the dirtiest player in the game, but uh, the smartest player as well, making them come to him. Yeah, and he knows the rules too. He knows there are no disqualifications. He just hits a bunch of low blows to turn the... Oh, yeah, it's, Great. it's, it's Rochambeau Fest. He's just, <laughs> it's just bang, bang, bang. It's one of the best things you will ever see. And the, low blow, the low blow was basically his signature move, wasn't it? It was in the SmackDown games. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this was this is just so blatant. Like it's just it's the mule kick here. It's an uppercut there. It's just so many variations of smacking someone the in the t- Jackie Chan of low blows. He was just like <laughs> three guys at once. Yeah, but he got he gets the upper hand. He goes on an absolute uh, Rochambeau fest, and then out comes NWO Sting and the commentary team is just so flat. They're just like, oh, it's Sting. Oh, no. <laughs> and they are just completely th- throwing him under the bus here. So, Joel, you love, as a big Sting fan, you, you would have been like, as, as a back in the day, you'd be like in tears. How could he betray us? Well, I think um, after a few a few moves or a few stinger splashes, like even the commentary, like, yep, that's him. That's his signature move. I was just there going, no, that's not the real Sting. The, the child in me was just like, why can't you see that's not the real sting? How dare you say that about him? But um, again, like I said earlier, I think it was a great ploy. I, I was sort of suggesting maybe they should have had him in a match or some more physicality, but I think that would have gave, given away the illusion far too quickly. But I guess the commentary guys were really trying to show their disappointment uh, as mm. opposed, I guess, when Hogan was the big third man reveal, they were over the top. With this, they kind of almost to a point undersold it a little bit, like as yeah. if they were disappointed, like, oh, all hope is lost type of deal. I think they did a great job by doing that, by playing it almost straight and not too over the top. And then when the real Sting came out, 
I, I think sometimes wrestling doesn't get the credit for forever being mm. smart or creative or original. But then having the real sting come out, not to just mm. save the day and be like, look, it was him all along. Isn't he great? He did it and then he walked out because he said, you guys didn't trust me. It wasn't a full heel turn. It was just him being a real human saying, how dare oh. you not trust me? I'm out. And not only that too, when he comes out, when the actual sting comes out, he comes out with full force. Like he bolts down the entranceway. He completely takes out every single member of the NWO. All of the other uh, Team WCW standing there in shock, looking at him as Sting is cleaning house. Single-handedly, the commentators are losing their mind. He was telling the truth. He was telling the truth. (laughs) And then... The piece de resistance, Sting gets into the other ring and then just gives them the, tells them to stick it. Very, this is one of the best bits of production from WCW ever see, where Sting goes and says audibly to, to the home audience, and probably for the first couple of rows, you convince now, does that prove it? Does that, uh, and then goes, and then does the old stick it and then leaves. And Lex Luger has an Oscar-winning performance here. He just... He he is just, like, crestfallen. He is just seen, like, everything I thought that I knew is a lie. Digger! Yeah, when he's crawling down the aisle when they're beating him up after the match and he's like, Stinger, and he's crying on his knees. Yeah. I mean... If you pay attention uh, when Sting's in the ring there, you'll actually see a VHS cover of the crow in his tights as well. So uh, a little bit, you know, they like to say, you know, WCW didn't do good storytelling, but, um, you know, it was all there. We just didn't see it. But you're right, Simon. It is a great story because without Sting, that's it. The wheels, the numbers game, it gangs up on them and the NWO win war games and they just completely assault Lex Luger afterwards. And... The, the commentators are just so despondent. They're like, oh, well, well, this is it. And you're right. It's almost so, like, stellar. It's a streetcar named Desire, the performance from Lex Luger as he's crawling towards the back. But then Randy Savage comes back. And this is probably one of the, like you said, this is probably one of the best bits of storytelling too because we got to remember Halloween Havoc is the next pay-per-view where Randy Savage is taking on Hulk Hogan. And the NWO are doing the their absolute best to make sure that Savage does not get to Halloween Havoc. Yeah, they beat the absolute crap out of Randy Savage post-match here. And then Liz comes out and mm. they spray paint her. And you think the pay-per-view is going to end there. But, geez, how long did this post-match go for? Were they running <laughs> under time and had to stretch? Because this felt like a separate main event, the beatdown yeah. of Randy Savage. And yeah. it was maybe that was the key to WCW making this matter. Like some of these beatdowns were just so one-sided. You know, you got no relief on the night. You had to stick around for the conclusion. Mm. I loved, uh, I was going to say Big Show, uh, but the Giant saying that he was Leonardo da Vinci uh, with his uh, spray painting or whatever. And, you know, I think he had one of the best lines uh, at the end near the commentary table, but you only got the end of it because he didn't have a headset on. Uh, Good uh, note there if you're in radio, always be on mic, as they say. (laughs) Uh, Nims and Simon, you'll appreciate that. Something about the Ric Flair retirement fund. Um, That's right, yes. It did, it did seem to stretch, but I think you're probably right this time. I think they're really trying to push the Savage Hogan thing for the next pay-per-view, which in, I guess in essence makes sense. But going back to the actual, I guess, the finish of the match, did, did it kind of, I mean, it just kind of finished. It was just like, oh, 
like there was no real i guess i don't know if that's a submission thing because you know you get the one two three or whatever but it just kind of felt a bit flat i mean and that was a signature mark for wcw until they went out of business with flat finishes but mm. it just seemed a bit odd but um i guess making sense i guess tying it around with randy savage yeah, I think that was it. And I think, um, you know, it wasn't a, a time for any near falls or kickouts. It was just they've lost, Sting turned his back on them and they had no hope of fighting back. It just ended. You know, it was more about the beatdown at that point. Yeah, because they were talking about how they've essentially crippled Lex Luger. Arn Anderson is being wedged in between both rings by Scott Hall. <laughs> and it was just... And the best part of this, the, one of my favourite things about the post-match extended show, uh, as I like to think of it, is Randy Anderson, the referee, doing his absolute best to fight back the NWO mm. like, by shielding Liz. Like, yes, yeah. It's, it's one of those little things, those little bits of storytelling that I don't think gets enough credit. But as they go to... As they chase away the, the commentators... A couple of things that I loved. Um, Bobby the Brain Heenan basically going, oh, no, I'm done. Taking the headset yeah. off and just running away. And Hulk Hogan calling Dusty Rhodes daydream believer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was just so strange. But, uh, look, that was – it sort of continued the theme as we've been going on about Simon of WCW – Regardless of what happened in the middle, at the start of the middle of their pay-per-views, you're always left with something massive that makes that pay-per-view worth it at the end of it with War Games. Yeah, if we're just looking at these pay-per-views consecutively, they're three of the biggest moments in WCW's history and they all happen consecutively. The NWO formed at Bash at the Beach. You know, we've seen um, Hogan win the championship and now we've seen... Sting turn his back, you know, and the, and the NWO gain more control with war games. WCW, when it came to just this main story, it was untouchable at this point. And obviously Nitro the next night, I believe that's when Sting does the uh, promo, you know, he declares himself a free agent and, uh, you know, what's the quote he always says? You never know when I might just pop up or I'll be around or whatever he says, but <laughs> I, around, I just remember guys, him. The see you around, guys. <laughs> I'm going to collect my paycheck, but uh, <laughs> having his back to the hard cam, always uh, yeah. interesting promo, that one. That was a very cool one. Well, the... It, it's it's the it's very symbolic in the sense of like you know he turns his back on the fans by ironically facing uh, a good chunk of them, but uh, it it really this is this is where it looks like WCW the NWO is not just a flash in the pan like SummerSlam was a great pay per view, but uh, in terms of putting it up against Fall Brawl, I got to say that I reckon Fall Brawl won. And, I mean, SummerSlam, I mean, it had a bit, man, was it like maybe two or three big matches? Um, obviously, the, the Vader and uh, Shawn Michaels with the move, move. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, again, I go back to, you know, we'll talk about nostalgia. You had Hogan. You had Savage. You had the Outsiders. You had Luger. You had Sting. You had all yeah, this. Yeah. You had a handful of guys who the crowd would respond to. But in saying that, you did have Shawn Michaels and the like, the Bret Hart's and an upcoming Steve Austin who who were workhorses but weren't fully appreciated uh, just yet. I would say if we're going to compare this to SummerSlam, I'd say the two main matches of SummerSlam were still better maybe as matches than anything on this show, but the ending to Fall Brawl just maybe gives this the edge because of historical mm. importance again. So that's where WCW was winning. You know, matches don't count for everything when you've got moments like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, like I said, big stakes, but sometimes the sizzle of the match, sometimes they are absolute stinkers. And But, you know, people kept coming back for more. Yeah. Um, yep. The tagline for this pay-per-view, do we think this lived up to the tagline, want to play with the big boys in a cage? I think, they, <laughs> I think that's what we got here. They were doing yeah. their absolute best to get their most mileage out of where the big boys play, weren't they? <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> Is that the, the adjective or... Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> but no, look, it, this was a stellar show on story. Like, uh, Simon, I've, I've sadly got to disagree with you there. I do think if you put Vader and, and um, Shawn Michaels... Joel's right. You've, the star power in itself, it's a completely, the deck is completely stacked against the WWE. In terms of a match quality, um, you can go back and watch Vader versus, um, Vader versus Shawn Michaels. And it's a classic. It's, it's a classic big man versus little man. But the shenanigans towards the end sort of <laughs> take a bit of the shine off of that match. Whereas the shenanigans at the end of this match make the match even better. Yeah, no, no, and I can totally see that. And honestly, I am more inclined to agree with that style these days. We so we see so many quote-unquote good matches and we don't see enough of what we saw at Fall Brawl, the storytelling, you know, the yep. reason for us Absolutely. to care and call our friends and say, oh, my God, Lex Luger's so sad that Sting turned his back on him. We need more of that drama and looking back at it, you know, yeah, WCW gives you the replayability to watch it back because it does feel like a soap opera. At this time, the wheels fall off in a couple of years. We know that. But right here in 96, the NWO story is perfect. And I know we uh, said it, I think, uh, previously, Simon, but uh, 1996, Shawn Michaels, no one can touch him. Even his work rate, as good as it was, couldn't beat, you know, the likes of uh, Hulk Hogan or an NWO. Well, we'll see how the WWF respond at, in our next edition of Reliving the Wall. It's, it's up Mind Games. Mind Games is coming up next. And again, if we're going to talk about match work rate compared to everything else, Shawn Michaels versus Mankind is practically untouchable. You know, mm. a match of the year in 96 for a lot of people, one of the greatest title matches ever, and maybe an underrated classic. I know a lot of people love it, like, you know, real nerds like us, but... I think it's sort of uh, underappreciated for both Mick Foley and Shawn Michaels to a mainstream audience. Mm. And you think about the two competitors, I mean, the finesse and the absolute brilliance of Shawn Michaels and the, I guess, the just the raw thuggery of a, of a Mick Foley, uh, especially as the early days of the mankind there, was not the most skilled uh, performer but could tell stories with movements, with the pulling of his hair. And I think Shawn Michaels credited Mick Foley or mankind at this point in time to sort of giving Shawn Michaels that harder edge as opposed mm. to just being that clean cut, again, sort of similar with Chris Jericho, long hair, good-looking guy, Yay, but like sort of giving that harder edge with this really physical match that they had at Mind Games. Yeah, well, that is something to definitely look forward to. Uh, yeah, that will be our next edition of Reliving the War, but uh, this has been an absolute fun one. If you do want to check out our past episodes, make sure you head to greywolfentertainment.net. You can find it all there or on Apple, Spotify, or everywhere where you get your podcast. Make sure you follow ENT on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. But, Joel, we really thank you for taking a bit of time out to talk a bit of WCW with us. And, uh, obviously... Uh, the wrestling source bottle goes from strength to strength, and WCW Gold as well. You can catch out, uh, you can catch both the WCW page on Twitter, Twitter 
facebook.com forward slash WCW Gold. You can follow the Wrestling Source Bottle as well on Twitter, uh, twitter.com forward slash say source. Plenty of places to find you guys as well too. Is that correct, Joel? Yeah, look, I have a lot of Twitter accounts. I call them burner accounts just to like my own tweets because, you know, when you think, you know, you've done the best tweet you can possibly do, you'd be like, why is the ether not liking this? So uh, hence all the Twitter accounts. But now uh, the main, I guess, one was uh, at says source with the wrestling source bottle, but sort of using WCW gold as a bit of a segment. Um, but uh, on a per- I guess personally, Joel Brown underscore JB, uh, you can uh, send me your your hate mail or your hate tweets or, <laughs> or, or your positivity. But, um, yeah, I'm actually – this all sort of spawned for me and I'm guessing sort of similar with you guys with uh, the current circumstances we find ourselves in, especially you guys in Victoria, um, where I'm a bit more uh, luckier, able to sort of go outside and do uh, things like go to work. But um, that's what really spawned WCW Gold and sort of, you know, really taken off and – you know, given me something to sort of look forward to and going back uh, down uh, the days of yesteryear. It's uh, been great. And, you know, any follower or any, uh, you know, chat online with any any similar fans is always appreciated. Yeah, it certainly is a, a sign of the times where we sort of like to go back to the the familiarity of seeing the NWO spray paint everyone. <laughs> and it's perfect. I can't believe none of us made that joke or connection. But what better to do than when you're locked down than to watch a cage match and be locked in with <laughs> yes. war games. Look, the, uh, the wife just bought some gold um, spray paint and I was very tempted to just do the NWO, but uh, well, I'll, I'll be basically be vandalising my own uh, house and uh, we're only renting. so uh, okay. I, I thought you that. were going to do it on the back of her dress like they did to Liz. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> To any partner, that wouldn't go well, I wouldn't imagine. Well, if you did, we would be calling you a coward, much in the same way <laughs> that uh, Bobby Heenan did. But, uh, Joel, it's a real pleasure to have you on board, Reliving the War Man, and uh, we look forward to, like I said, give WCW Gold a, uh, a good old follow because there's some absolute gems from early uh, from early 2000s and late 90s WCW, and you even actually do a few heavy watch alongs as well Joel. yeah absolutely uh anyone who wants to follow along it's mostly just me but uh, eventually uh, someone else will start uh, using the hashtag wcw gold but uh <laughs> usually try to do once one a month in correlation with uh that month's uh, pay-per-view and usually i'll put up a poll and try to give uh, a bit of a variety whether it be from the early 90s to 2000 obviously 95 and 2000 kind of feature quite heavily this year given the uh, anniversary and speaking of anniversary guys do you know September 4 is the debut episode for WCW Monday Nitro? It's the 25th uh, anniversary, 1995, if I'm doing my math correct. Uh, so, yeah, I'm planning to, I guess, just do a bit of a watch along there, but I'll also cover that a little bit uh, podcast-wise. And uh, 25 years uh, from the first Nitro, which essentially started this podcast in Reliving the War. Yeah. Yep. And there you go. Right. Kicked off Lex Luger's comeback to uh, relevancy where he rocked up on the first Nitro in the puffy shirt. See? Looking like MacGyver. (laughs) Really did. Joel, I'll tell you, you must do whatever you can in your power for that 25th anniversary edition of Nitro to somehow get Lex Luger to just appear for a couple of seconds and then just question why is he there. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe if I go to like a local shopping centre here on the Central Coast where I'm based and try to find any big buff guy in a white shirt and a mullet and just... uh, (laughs) 
what are you doing here? Yeah. Oh, but it's a ball. Uh, yeah, just take just a Chinese. blurry photo from far and be like, it's Lex Luger <laughs> at Westfield. <laughs> Westfield, yeah, Westfield Tiger here on the Central Coast. And uh, uh, a lot of people in Australia being like, what the hell are you doing? You're like, oh, well, if you're a wrestling fan, you'd get it. You'd and, get it. Uh, yeah, greatly appreciate it's- being on the show, guys. Thanks for giving me uh, the opportunity. Oh, no, man. We, we thought uh, it's always great to share the WCW love. And as Joel said, you can follow him on Twitter at Joel Brown underscore JB. Make sure you check out WCW Gold on Twitter as well, at WCW Gold, and the Wrestling Source Bottle, which comes out fairly regularly. Simon, I believe you uh, made an appearance on there fairly recently too. Yeah, that's right. I was on there not long ago talking some SummerSlam. But in this current climate, geez, there's a lot of pay-per-views, so that's already outdated. Look out for my next appearance, which is hopefully more relevant. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So check it out on Twitter, at Sos Source there. But uh, as you, as always, you can follow me on Twitter, at DocNames. You can follow Simon on his Twitter account too, at Simon Tackler. But this has been Reliving the War, exclusively on the Grey Wolf Wrestling Entertainment Network. We'll catch you next time with Mind Games in your house. Or is it in your house, Mind Games? Well... Tune in and find out on the next edition of Reliving the War. This has been another presentation from the Grey Wolf Entertainment Network. GreyWolfEntertainment.net.